And it was a big challenge for me because I came from running my own organization where everybody reported to me to being in a company where I reported to other people when I had peers. And one of the things that was interesting, and I think about this quite a bit, is in my company, I was in charge of the culture, the core values. And now that I was part of a, a larger organization, I wasn't in charge of that. So I had to approach things a little bit differently. Howdy, y'all, and welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast. That's Christian Espinosa. He's retired Air Force. He's a former consultant. He's a former director of R&D, consultant again, instructor, VP of product, and author of a very popular book in cyber. But the reason he is down here at the ranch today is to share with us another interesting journey in his career. Conceiving a cyber business, building that business, selling that business, wearing the golden handcuffs, and now moving on and beginning to build another business. That is a journey I'm sure many of you are interested in. So thank you, Christian, for coming on down to the ranch to share it with us. Yeah, thanks for having me on the Cyber Ranch, Alan. I appreciate it. Welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast, recorded under the big blue skies of Texas, where one CISO explores the cybersecurity landscape with the help of friends and experts. Here's your host, Alan Alford. So I already gave some highlights of your career in cyber. How about the biggest high point for you and maybe a little bit about the newest, what you're doing? Sure. The biggest high point for me was probably at the time I thought it was a low point. I was working for a company. I was a VP of cybersecurity products and I wasn't aligned with a CEO and we had a quite a few kind of run-ins and I just felt stressed a lot and you know, I was getting paid a decent salary. I, I kind of ticked all the boxes. I had a decent title, a decent job, but there was a stress and a friction there. So it was to the point where it was causing me, like my mental sanity was at stake there. So I decided to quit the job without actually having another job lined up. And that's the first time I'd ever done something like that. I just gave notice and quit and there was no other job. So that forced me to kind of reevaluate my career path. And I thought, well, I have a lot of contacts here. So why don't I try freelance work or solopreneur work? And that's what I ended up doing. So it was that moment where there's a lot of friction. I decided to quit though. And it kind of put me on a path that led me to starting my own company. Got it. Okay. So that's where you are today. Now you've got a new company you've started again. Yeah. I've got quite a few different companies in different industries. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I'm a serial entrepreneur, as they say at heart. <laughs> Fantastic. So let's start with kind of what did it take from, gee, I'd like to start a business to actually starting one. Like that moment you think, wouldn't it be cool if I ran a business that did X, you know, and now you've launched a business that does X. How does that transition work? When I was doing freelance work or solopreneur work, I was teaching cybersecurity classes, doing penetration testing, doing audits. I was doing a little bit of everything. The reality is it got kind of boring and routine for me. I was making a lot of money. I had a lot of free time, but I felt like I wasn't growing personally. So I felt like what better way to grow and contribute to society than to form a business? And I had a lot of people ask me kind of through my solopreneur career if I could do more work. And I, my answer was always no, it was just me. So I thought, well, if I form a business, it'll force me to grow and it will allow me to increase my capacity to deliver to clients that have an interest of working with me. So that's what I did. Fantastic. You see that you're going to add some value. You get it off the ground. You start from a position of doing various and, and few things here and there, and you kind of hone in. 
So now you've got the business going and getting it off the ground from that original conception. What were some of the hurdles and what were some of the challenges in growing it? And how did you overcome those? There were a lot of challenges. <laughs> I thought it would be easy to start a business and have payroll and employees and run it and clients would just show up. But there were a lot of challenges. I kind of a a vision that's like dashboard with all these dials. And when you turn one of the dials up, another one goes down. So if you turn like sales up, delivery capacity goes down. If you turn delivery capacity up, sales goes down. It's like you never get the dials quite balanced. So with me, the challenges were getting those dials balanced, having the right amount of sales with a process behind it, the right amount of delivery with a process behind that. And marketing. One of the things I neglected at first was marketing and sales. I just kind of felt like, well, if I build this company, people will come. But it's kind of like that Field of Dreams movie. People just don't come. You have to like market. You have to get the word out. You have to network. And a few of the things that helped me is I had to get over myself. Initially, I thought I could do everything. I thought I can brute force this and make this work. And I just tried to do it all myself. If my staff was having problems with something, I would jump in and help. But there's only so many hours in a day. And after like 20 hours every day, you kind of get burned out. So I ended up seeking some outside counsel and outside advice by joining some peer groups like Vistage is the group I joined, the Genius Network, with other business owners that were on the same path as me or further ahead of the path so I could shorten my learning curve. And one of the things that really helped was this thing called the one-page strategic plan. It's literally one page, but it gets... Everything dialed in on one single page, your messaging, your target niche, your staffing to make sure you have the right people in the right roles. Because one of the things that I had to realize when I try to do everything myself, there are certain things I'm not good at and I just don't like to do like processes. So I had somebody on my team that is really good with processes. So I made her the COO and she helped nail down all the processes and I could focus on the vision and the way forward. So it's a combination of a lot of different things, but... It was definitely intense learning curve. <laughs> yeah. All right. So some of it, school of hard knocks, some of it learning from folks from the outside, getting help from those who've been there before. And I also heard in there finding folks with the right skill set to align with the right roles, right? Like finding that operationally minded person to be your COO, I can't help but think was super key to your success. Oh, it, it was. Yeah. Like you said, the school of hard knocks, I did pay a lot of dumb tax, as they say. But you know. <laughs> The dumb tax. I love it. <laughs> it's definitely a growing experience. Okay. So you're growing the business, you're getting it off the ground, you're fiddling with those dials, you're getting your delivery versus your sales versus your marketing versus your operations, you're worried about payroll, you're getting all that going. And somehow you're also growing over time. What does that growth look like? Were there specific growth strategies that you went for? Did it just sort of organically happen as you worked on the dials? Or talk to me a little bit about the growth aspects of it. Yeah, this is the ironic part. It's kind of counterintuitive to a lot of people, especially when you're in the business and you've got payroll, you have to make payroll and everything. You want to take all the clients you can get, even if it's a stretch for your delivery team. So initially, I would take pretty much any client that needed cybersecurity help. If my staff couldn't figure out how to deliver, I would step in personally. But I realized that that strategy was stretching us thin and we weren't really growing from that strategy. So what I did is I niched it down and focused on a specific niche, which was medical device, cybersecurity assessments, and penetration testing. So when I focused on that, because there's a compliance requirement for it, the FDA requires medical device manufacturers to have a penetration test done, have a third party do a cybersecurity assessment. And I thought, this is like 
the blue ocean. There's not a lot of people doing this. Yeah. So I niched it down to that. I wrote blog articles on it. I did videos on it. We SEO'd our website. So when somebody searched for medical device cybersecurity, we were like the first person, the first search result to pop up on Google. And that yeah. is when we really started growing quite a bit because we had narrowed it down to where we were one of the few companies that did something specific. Yeah. So niching it down is really, I think, key. At first, you don't want to do it, but I think it's critical to find a specific niche. Yeah. It seems a little counterintuitive even almost, like to grow shrink, right? Like shrink your focus to grow your business. (laughs) Exactly. It does seem counterintuitive. Yeah. But it works. That's a lesson learned. Those that are trying to get their cyber practice off the ground, heed that one. That sounds like a very good lesson to me. All right. So now you've grown the business. You're booming. Life is good. And there's buyers. Did you try to attract buyers? Was your intention to sell? Did the buyers just approach you and say, hey, we want to buy you? Like, Where did the buyers enter the equation and how did the buyers enter the equation? I didn't really have an exit strategy when I started the business, which in hindsight, (laughs) you should have an exit strategy. (laughs) I just sort of started it and figured things out as I was going. I noticed though, when I got to a certain point that there was a lot of interest in buying the company. So I had a lot of different offers would come in through email, through LinkedIn, through a phone call. Mm -hmm. And I entertained most of them just to get a feel or a sense of what people were looking for in a company and what they were willing to offer. It's kind of like when you are looking for a job, you interview with a lot of different places to get a sense of what's out there and the options. And one of the offers I had, the one I ended up taking, I felt like it aligned with me the company that bought my company is called Cerberus. It's like the three-headed dog that guards the gates yeah, yeah. of hell. <laughs> right, and right. Uh, ironically, I have a patent on a device called Cerberus. And my squadron at the Air Force Academy was called Cerberus. And there's a dog <laughs> in this, this show I watch, a SEAL team called Cerberus. So I thought, well, this is weird. You know, like maybe the universe is aligning and I should go with this company. And they structured the offer a little bit differently because they offered me stock. And they had a roadmap to go public. So I thought there's a little more upside on this. There's more risk, obviously, than cash up front. But if this roadmap is successful and they go public and the stock grows, then it will help me more so than just a bunch of cash up front. Right on. So kind of a long-term play. It wasn't just a sell. It was a sell plus you deliberately tied yourself to the buying organization, right? You became part of this. Yeah. And bet on a future play, not just a sell and run kind of deal. So that kind of leads me to my next question. Whenever you do a sale like that, obviously your name, your reputation, your brand, your leadership, your presence in the company, all of those things matter in the sense of you, the person. And so any buying entity that acquires a smaller company is going to want the leadership to stick around. And it sounds like with the stocks, they incentivized you to stick around, right? But there's also kind of the golden handcuffs where contractually, usually anyway, you're committed to sticking around. Like, what was that like? Did you have a set period where you had to be there? What was the golden handcuffs like for you? I didn't have a set period I had to stick around. Okay. I had a lockup period for a year where I couldn't sell the stock or anything. So I sort of had some golden handcuffs. And it's... One of those things where I felt like if I could contribute to the company's growth, it will help the stock. Since I was a shareholder at that point, I wanted to stick around and help. And it was a big challenge for me because I came from running my own organization where everybody reported to me to being Mm -hmm. in a company where I reported to other people when I had peers. And one of the things that was interesting, and I think about this quite a bit, is in my company, I was in charge of the culture, the core values, 
the mm -hmm. emotional intelligence, the touch points, the clients, all of that. And now that I was part of a, a larger organization, I wasn't in charge of that. So I had to approach things a little bit differently when I had some friction with somebody that didn't have people skills and wanted to be smarter than everybody. I had to approach it differently from more of a peer level versus a yeah. supervisory level. Let's pause right there and hear a brief word from our sponsor. Hey everyone, it's me, Simone Biles. You might be wondering why you're hearing my voice on a cybersecurity podcast ad. Well, it's because I'm partnering with Axonius. Whether you're a gymnast like me, or an IT or security pro, complexity is inevitable. And I've learned that the key to success is focusing on what you can control. Go check out my video at axonius.com slash Simone. That's A-X-O-N-I-U-S dot com slash S-I-M-O-N-E. What other challenges were there in that transition from leader to participant, right? Like that's a radical gear shift. The longer you've been used to running your own thing, I would imagine that's an even more radical gear shift. So what other challenges were there on that front? Some of the challenges were when I had my own business, I could do my own personal brand and I could do pretty much whatever I wanted with the company that bought my company. They had that, like I said, the roadmap to go public. So there's a lot of more scrutiny over yeah. what I personally did because they were focused on going public. So like growing my personal brand, what videos I posted, you know, anything I did on social sure. media was under scrutiny because they were looking to go public at that point. So I had to like tone all that down and pull it back, which was different for me because I thought my personal brand with my company enhanced Alpine Security, my, the company I sold. But in this situation, it was sort of like I had to go dormant on my personal stuff for a while until the company went public. Okay. So restrictions on your, what for you were default behaviors, <laughs> having to wrestle with that as well. All right. So now you're with the new company. Now you're learning to adjust. And now the next stage, I guess, is deciding, hey, maybe it's time to move on and do something else again. Like, what was that pivotal moment for you? Where did you decide, okay, this has been a run. Now it's time to try something else. I decided back in June to leave the company. I wasn't feeling like I was adding as much value as I wanted to anymore. I had been asked to take specific leadership roles, but I didn't want to because mm -hmm. my whole plan all along was not to stay with the company. I didn't want more responsibility. So I left in June and it was liberating. My goal, I remember like planning out my year in December of last year. And one of the goals I have for this year was sovereignty. So okay. for me, that's freedom from a lot of constraints and my life is in my own hands. So it felt very liberating. And Initially, I thought I would just take a bunch of time off and do nothing. I did take about six weeks off. I traveled around and saw my favorite band, Nightwish. I think I saw them like six times in the U.S. I just kind <laughs> nice. of like a groupie. <laughs> I went to Hawaii for a few weeks, and I have started a couple different ventures since then. Right I'm on. doing some real estate investing with short terminals. I started a new cybersecurity company. I'm opening up a med spa <laughs> with a partner in St. Louis. And I'm working on my next book. So that idea of taking all this time off was only about six weeks, really. And I also bought an <laughs> I was, RV. So I plan on like a 1974 Winnebago Brave, like a super old RV that I plan on living in for a while. Oh, that's <laughs> so, cool. Yeah. That's cool. Okay. All right. So I was going to say somebody with your background, I can't imagine like six weeks sounds about right for what I would expect in terms of your tolerance for doing nothing, <laughs> despite your plans, right? I'm yeah. going to do nothing. And six weeks later, you're doing 18 things. So let's deconstruct some of that a little bit. Do you want to share what your new cyber company is doing or are you still in stealth mode? I'm basically, I have a cybersecurity company where I'm doing penetration testing, medical device. 
cybersecurity okay. assessments, but it's by referral only. I'm not out actively marketing anything. Got it. Because I do a lot of speaking engagements and talks, and I felt like if somebody wanted help with something, I have a platform to help them, basically. Cybersecurity right related. Yeah. Right on. Okay. All right. So let's go back in time. Let's talk about your first book because I mentioned that in The Leader, but we haven't talked about that yet. Why don't you tell folks about your first book and then we'll talk about what you're doing for your second book. Yeah. My first book is about my journey with my company, my cybersecurity company that I sold, Alpine Security. And it was really about all the challenges I had in the company. 99% of the challenges I had were because my staff, which is super bright, super high IQ penetration testers, didn't have emotional intelligence or people skills. So they would talk over a client's head, not understand the client, not make the client feel understood or appreciated. And even internally, uh, there was like this fear where somebody would be afraid of saying they didn't know something out of fear of being ridiculed by another teammate. So I mm -hmm, thought, mm -hmm. hmm, this is not the culture I want for my company. And I realized when I saw it from the perspective of a CEO running my own company, it kind of clicked that this is a problem in the entire industry. And I used to be part of that problem. I used to be the one that talked over somebody's head because that's how I felt significant by being smarter than other people. So I decided to shift that culture in my company. So all the things I did that worked is what I ended up putting in the book. Right on. So the book is really about a seven-step process of how super high IQ people can develop emotional intelligence or people skills to remove that glass ceiling that's holding them down. Oh, I love it. Can you rattle off what the seven steps are? I mean, not go into the whole book, but just what are the seven steps? Can you tell me? Yeah. The first step is awareness. So awareness of yourself. And I talk about neuro-linguistic programming quite a bit in the book and strong neural pathways. So when you're triggered, you automatically kind of run this program that goes on autopilot. And before you know it, you execute the program. So it's important to have the awareness, be able to, to do a control C or stop that program from running and run a new program or new behavior. Okay. The second step is mindset. So I talk about a fixed mindset versus a growth mindset. A lot of people in cybersecurity say, I'm just not good with people. That's an example of a fixed mindset because mm. we can all get better at something, right. which is a growth mindset. Right. Step three is acknowledgement. As a leader, one of the things I struggle with is acknowledgement. I remember like finishing the Ironman World Championship in 2015 in Hawaii. And as soon as I crossed the finish line, I was automatically thinking about the next accomplishment I wanted to do yeah. versus taking a moment to like pat myself on the back. And what I realized is if I can't <laughs> acknowledge myself, I'm going to have a hard time acknowledging my staff. Okay. Step four is communication. With communication, I'm a believer that the meaning or the purpose of communication is response you get. Okay. So if you're not getting the right response from somebody, the ownership is on you to alter how you communicate. It's not to place blame on somebody else for not understanding. Mm -hmm. And then step five is monotasking. Monotasking is the opposite of multitasking. Monotasking is doing one thing with concentrated focus, breaking your day up in blocks of time. So you only work on that one thing during that block of time. And it shifts you from being busy to being productive. Okay. And it also helps you with presence. Like when you're communicating with someone, if you're there in the conversation, you're going to be a better communicator than if you're like half listening on your phone, texting somebody, etc. Right. And then step six is empathy. And in our world today, there's a lot of division. We like to focus on us versus them. Even in cybersecurity, it's like we're the cybersecurity team, their sales, their marketing, their uh, management. And all that division makes us see 
fellow humans as separate from ourselves. We all have the human condition in common, and it's hard to have empathy when you're focused on division. So I right. talk about cognitive versus effective empathy in the book. And then step seven is Kaizen, which is a Japanese word for constant and never-ending improvement. I'm a believer that we're not going to achieve perfection, but if we're making progress, that's what matters. Yeah. And Kaizen talks about getting to the root cause of something you're not improving on, finding that root cause, and then making the incremental improvements. It also gives you the confidence to get started on some of these steps because often we feel like we don't know where to begin. But right. with Kaizen, it's taking that first step and then making corrections along the way. And that's the journey of life. And that's the journey of those seven steps I just went over. I love it, man. All right. So how about the new book? What are you going to do for the new book? The new book is on, it's not cybersecurity related. It's on what I call the in-between It's the micro moments of life that are often ignored because we're so focused on the macro. And it's approaching those in-between moments with some intention. And that could be something as simple as driving to dinner. The dinner is like the macro thing, but the drive, if you approach that properly, could have more meaning than the actual dinner. And I think a lot of us go through this sort of zombie state in life where we're just sort of going from one thing to the next thing to the next thing. And we're distracted with our phone and everything else so that we're missing a lot of things that are right in front of us that really, I believe, the micro moments of life are what end up making up life in total, basically. Was it John Lennon, life is what happens when you're busy making plans? <laughs> I didn't know John Lennon said that. That's a good one, though. I think that was John Lennon. I could be completely wrong with the source of that quote, but life is what happens when you're busy making plans was the quote. I'll have to research who said it. I'll have to look that up, yeah. All right, so listen, Christian, I've got one question I ask every guest at the end of the show, and that is this. You are given a magic wand. And you can wave the magic wand and you can change any one thing about the world of cybersecurity. It could be people, process, tech, the ecosystem, the culture, the business of it, anything. You can change any one thing about cybersecurity. What is the one thing you would change? I would change the people. I think in cybersecurity, we have the processes, the frameworks, the technology. The thing that's missing is the people skills in cybersecurity. We tend to hire a lot of people that are super brilliant, that don't want to work with other people. And I'm a believer that you get what you tolerate. So when you hire people that are not good communicators, are always trying to posture as being smarter than everybody else, I believe that's hindering the industry and hurting the industry a lot. I think if we can develop those people skills in our super brilliant high IQ staff and high IQ people in cybersecurity, we would move the industry, shift it much further along. I love that. All right. Well, Christian Espinosa, author, CEO, consultant, pen tester, retired Air Force (laughs) trainer. (laughs) You've done it all. Thank you so much for coming on down to the ranch. Thank you, listeners. Y'all be good now.